Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm your host, Amy Kluber. Recall the time when bots led to transparency in the Supreme Court? I'm not talking about a hack into a server or a leak of documents. I'm referring to the now disbanded SCOTUS Servo, a bot that tracked changes in Supreme Court opinions after publication which then eventually prompted the Supreme Court to permanently adopt those transparency practices in-house. Behind the bot is Dave Zvenich, an attorney by trade who is now helming GSA's Technology Transformation Services, but not a stranger to the agency. He previously served in various tech acquisition roles at the agency during the Obama administration, including executive director at 18F. He brings an interesting approach to acquisition reform and digital services, having come from the legal field and one that was spurred amid the healthcare.gov launch. He discusses the success of modular contracting at 18F and how he plans to tackle some of government's most pressing challenges over the next year around acquisition, equity, and post-pandemic opportunities. Dave, thanks so much for joining us on GovCast. Great to have you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I know you have quite a history with digital services and GSA, particularly TTS, but you do come from a legal background, which was pretty intriguing. What first brought you to public service? It's kind of funny. It's a little bit by accident. So my, uh, my background, as you mentioned, is in law. And when I first went to law school, I thought I was going to be an IP attorney. I thought I was going to become a patents lawyer, had a background in mechanical engineering, grew up in a family of engineers and thought that I'd be you know, working for a big law firm and working, like I said, in intellectual property law. And along the way, had a pretty remarkable set of experiences. All that led me to public service. My first job out of law school was with a federal judge. And then I had the opportunity to work as uh, the chief of staff for a DC council member. And as soon as I started working for government and started working in public service, I was hooked. It's, it's an extraordinary opportunity to make a difference in the community. And it's really high, high impact work. And I've always been sort of grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. That's fantastic. And it's something I hear a lot from other federal workers as they come into, you know, whatever walks of life they've come from and coming into public service, there is that kind of personally driven mission to serve, you know, the citizens. So that's quite interesting. Even prior to your federal work, though, when you were working in law, I've read that you've authored something called Coding for Lawyers. <laughs> yep. um, those two things <laughs> is not something I immediately think go together. Right. So how did the intersection between law and tech come about? Yeah, there's actually a really great story about this. Um, so I was working as the general counsel for the DC Council. And one of my responsibilities there was to publish the DC official code. And that's that's a, it's a book. It's the compilation of all of the laws that are passed. So the DC official code. And my job is to publish it. And there was um, a moment where a software engineer had approached me and asked for the data behind the code. And I, honestly, I had no idea what he was talking about. And after some conversations, working with him and some other stakeholders, I was able to understand what he, what he meant is he wanted the legal data. He wanted the um, sort of machine-readable data that would go into the publication of the DC official code as a viewer would look at it. And I was able to publish the data. And then I was invited to what's called a hackathon. 
and I attended the hackathon and it blew me away. It was something that I could not have imagined was possible, which is you had a number of people who didn't work together day to day who were able to collaborate in real time and build software um, that I would have assumed would have cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and you know months and months and months of work, and they built it in a day. And at that moment, I said, I need to reverse engineer everything that just happened here. It was too cool. Everything from the collaboration tools that they used to the actual software that they're building. And that set me off on a personal effort to learn how to write software. And in the district, there's an extraordinary community of civic technologists and what they call legal hackers. And I got into that community and started to write software for fun. Um, and then I started to write it for, for work and eventually realized that there, wasn't a, there weren't a lot of resources for folks that were sophisticated enough to understand how you, know, you might write software, but really how to communicate that to a more legal audience. Um, and so I started writing coding for lawyers and the rest, as they say, is history. Amazing. Is it still being used today or no. is it still, do you, do you hear much feedback on it? I still get uh, people who uh, periodically uh, reach out and say that they started it and they use it. Um, I now tell people that there are many, many, many resources um, that I've come to learn about that I share for how to how to learn to write software. And one of the things I really think is important is it's it's not so much that everyone needs to become a coder, but I think there's a, a great value in understanding how software is actually delivered, particularly when you're in a legal profession, because so much of law and policy is actually embedded in the software that people use. Wow, that's fascinating. So I know you did also push the Supreme Court to be more transparent through the SCOTUS servo that you created. <laughs> and that kind of goes along those lines of the transparency requirement and yeah. your ideals with you know open source and everything. Can you tell us about that a little bit more? Sure. That was one of my favorite civic tech activism examples. Um, and it actually led to how the Supreme Court, it changes, the Supreme Court changed how they publish uh, their opinions. So by way of backstory, SCOTUS servo is a Twitter bot. And I created it a number of years ago, and it subsequently shut down, and I'll explain why later. But the reason I created it um, is that the Supreme Court publishes what are called slip opinions. And slip opinions are published um, whenever the Supreme Court makes a decision. They publish it on their website, and that's how people know what the law is. But over time, actually, the Supreme Court will go back and edit um, those slip opinions. They'll make changes, and usually they're technical changes, you know missing a comma, a wrong number, or something like that. But every now and then, there is a more substantive change. And there was this one moment in time where there was a pretty notable change in one of the opinions by Justice Scalia. And there was a New York Times article written about the fact that there was this change. And it was through that article that I learned that the Supreme Court made these changes, but did not make the fact of those changes public. And so... I started speaking to a number of other lawyers and folks in sort of the community and about all the various possible ways that the Supreme Court could change the rules and change the practice. And I realized in that moment that it could be fixed with just a little bit of software. And so I wrote, um, I wrote a bot it basically in an evening, put it on online. And the next thing I knew, it was uh, out for everyone to see when the changes were made. And it didn't require any sort of heavy so, you know, like I said, any regulatory reform or anything like that. It was just able for people to be able to look on Twitter and see if the Supreme Court had made a change to its opinions. And a couple of years later, I had the great fortune of being able to shut it down. And that's because the Supreme Court did update its practice to start publishing not just the opinions, but the changes to those opinions on its website. 
And so now there's no need for SCOTA service to exist. And to me, that's that's just such a win because I think as as I think about the civic tech community, you know, its goal is to ultimately help the public benefit and help government operate more effectively. And so I, I think it's just a great, great opportunity to celebrate when government improves its service. And to the extent that SCOTA Servo helps push uh, push in that direction, it's just a real uh, it's a real privilege to have been able to do that. That's definitely something you would maybe one of the only times you would be happy to actually like get rid of something or turn off something. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I was thrilled to turn it off. Right, <laughs> that's funny. So I, you are quite a veteran of GSA with uh, having previous stints at 18F. You basically pioneered 18F's acquisitions model as we know it today. What sparked your interest in pursuing the government acquisition field in particular? That's a great question. Um, this also actually traces back to my experience with the DC Council. So my boss at the time was the chair of the Committee on Government Operations, where uh, she had responsibility of, among other things, government contracting. Um, and things like budgets and finance and the like. And one of the things that I worked on when I was a staffer was a comprehensive re- revision to the DC procurement laws. And there I had the opportunity to work with some real, you know, real leaders um, in procurement policies, including the then chief procurement officer for the DC government, who actually later went on to be the senior procurement executive at a federal agency and, and a good friend. And we rewrote the statutes. But there was this other thing that kept happening, which is that I was also working in this role on a number of investigations um, into various procurement failures. And the surprising fact of these investigations is that most of the failures um, had nothing to do with the law that we had just passed. Um, In other words, you're modernizing all of the pre-award work, but almost all of the failures happened post-award. And it struck me as there was this moment of impedance mismatch, right? You've got all of the politicians, all of the lawyers, all of the policy folks um, focused on how do you get into a contract, but all of the mischief, all of the the challenges, all of the um, the heartbreak happened after award. And so when healthcare.gov happened, I had this moment of of thinking, am I doing everything that I should be doing to sort of help you know help address this type of a problem? And it led me to sort of realize that there was an opportunity after healthcare.gov to reimagine how we actually manage our procurement processes and to focus on not just, again, how do you enter an award, but more importantly, how do you make sure that post-award you're managing those practices in a more healthy way? And so all of the focus, frankly, for my, my work at TTS and 18F before that was to try to think about how do you, how do you get, you obviously have to get through award, um, but to really have a healthy post-award relationship with our with our industry partners and our agency partners and making sure that they're set up for success. And so to me, the, the government acquisition space is really, it's one where there's a lot of opportunity for improvement, but also where there's a great deal of opportunity for success. Folks want to be successful. Industry wants to be successful. Agencies want to be successful. And there's a lot of great opportunity to make sure that as long as we're managing our processes effectively on the government side and being more humble about what we actually are asking from our industry partners, we can lead to some really excellent outcomes. That's very interesting uh, considering healthcare.gov. It feels like such a pivotal moment for many agencies and teams. So you talking about it from like the acquisition perspective is interesting to me. Do you still feel like there's quite a long ways to go for government and acquisitions? Well, yes, and I mean, I think one of the things that's so great about the healthcare.gov example 
is that it was both a failure and a success. And I think I sometimes tell folks that if, if you haven't read the Inspector General's case study on healthcare.gov, you should. It's a really remarkable explanation of both the failure mode of why healthcare.gov failed, as well as the success and the turnaround. And I think there are a lot of really great lessons from that particularly very visible experience that, that relate into less visible experiences. Um, and so what were the, some of the challenges, right? And the contractor didn't have clear direction or clear product ownership from government in the failure. And in the success, you had real clear lines of communication. You had really clear sense of what success looked like. Before, the, you know, in the failure mode, you had sort of really rigid you know, lines of communication that only allowed feds to talk to feds and industry to talk to industry and you know, sort of no cross-team collaboration. And post-recovery, um, you had what they called a badgeless culture focusing on monitoring and focusing on success sort of in the, in the post-failure mode. And so I think those lessons are really, really valuable as we look to the broader federal IT ecosystem, which is to say, if you are having a healthy conversation, having a healthy relationship with your industry partners, you're more likely to be successful. If you're not, you're going to be more likely to fail. And so I think as a good case study, there are a lot of lessons that I've learned from that experience, and I think agencies could do well to do the same. Amazing. So you've, you know, with the push for being more of an open government and pushing for data transparency, how does this inform your perspective on contracting modernization and acquisitions? I think one of the areas for contracting in particular, and I've become a big proponent of what we call modular contracting. But the, the thesis behind modular contracting is really that government needs to make it less risky um, to buy. And you know, one of the challenges with, with risk is that risk is present whenever there's uncertainty and a possibility of an impact. And so as we think about ways that the government should be procuring software, but really just how it manages risk, is to try to reduce uncertainty. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about what TTS does is we focus on de-risking um, software delivery by focusing on ensuring that you're getting real feedback from users, making sure that you're incrementally funding your ideas. We have this program called 10X, for example, that allows you to take ideas um, that are totally, totally like undefined and uh, sort of amorphous, and then progressively testing the ideas to see whether or not they can actually get to scale. And then the, the value there is if some of them don't get to scale, you shut them down and you move on. And using sort of this idea of saying, how can we reduce uncertainty? How can we de-risk the process of delivering software is something that, frankly, all leaders should be doing. But TTS has really been investing and in, in leading this area for, uh, at this point, many, many years. Fantastic. Now, considering your previous tenures at the agency and TTS, but now newly helmed as director, can you go into your biggest priorities that you see in the short term? Sure. Um, so I think the first, obviously, is that there are a number of crises that are facing our country. Uh, we still are in the midst of a global pandemic. We still have a need to promote economic recovery. We have a need and an opportunity to address racial inequity and ensure accessibility and inclusion for all Americans and to address the climate crisis. And so a lot of my focus at the moment is around how do we support the government related to those particular priorities. And technology plays obviously a critical role in, in the execution on, on many of these things. Um, so that, that's a 
top priority. And then more directly with DTS and some of our agency partner work, it's really thinking about how do we promote more value for our agency partners, really making sure that we're doing everything that we can to support our agency partners, whether that's through our direct services that we provide through things like 18F or the Centers of Excellence, or our shared services such as login.gov or even something like the US Web Design System or search.gov. There are a number of different efforts underway, but fundamentally they come down to, are we delivering the most value for our partners and the public? Fantastic. And technology has so much opportunities you know, to bridge those kind of divides, especially with uh, your acquisitions perspectives and efforts there and regarding all the challenges that are ahead with the pandemic and then the racial inequities. It's certainly interesting to, to note where technology can thrive. Correct. And, you know, frankly, can be a hindrance, right? One of the things that I think we, we have to be mindful of is that in everything that we do, technology is not totally neutral. Um, we have to make sure that we're doing what we can to promote better outcomes for Americans and to be intentional about how we're building our products and services in a way that promotes equity. How do you see TTS evolving going forward, especially when you consider its position in facilitating acquisitions reform and new tech adoption? Yeah. So again, it comes down to value and equity. And I think from a value proposition perspective, TTS is a pretty, we're in a really unique position to help agencies. So agencies oftentimes find themselves in a situation where they want to use best practices. They want to bring new technologies to bear. They want to bring better, uh, healthy relationships to their industry partners, but they're stuck. Uh, they find that they don't know how to navigate the FAR. They don't know how, how to navigate FITARA. They don't know how to navigate sort of the appropriations processes, or they don't know how to even do user research because they, they don't know how the PRA works, for example. And TTS has really forged itself as a trusted federal partner to help agencies bring on those new practices, build capabilities and capacities within their organization and lead to better successful outcomes uh, with industry partners. And whether that's um, through 18F and working directly with an agency as part of an acquisition, whether that's uh, the centers of excellence um, and working sort of in more enterprise focus of you know things like context center consolidation or, or more, or even if we're thinking about, like I said, our, our shared solutions, things like a you know, the FedRAMP program, for example, which is really helping bring cloud service providers uh, to bear for agencies and using their ATOs. There's a lot of great work that we can do from a value proposition perspective to help bring best practices and tech to government. And I think the other, the other thing that I'm sort of really focusing on, and this gets back to equity, is making sure that not only do we have a diverse uh, inclusive workforce within TTS, but also making sure that we're promoting equity and accessibility outside of TTS. And that, what I mean by that is our software and our services should reflect the diversity of, of America. We should be making sure that we're mindful to how we can promote more equitable outcomes through our service delivery and ultimately making sure that we can build products that live our values. And I think one of the ways that we can really do that is both taking that external perspective but also thinking about it from an internal perspective. How do we ensure that we have a, a diverse diverse organization? How do we make sure that we have different backgrounds and experiences? How do we make sure that we have an environment where every person uh, feels that they can contribute and can have this sort of psychological safety that you really need to be a successful software delivery organization? Those two are, as we're seeing, are having uh, great necessities to go hand in hand. So I'm glad that's something that 
you are focusing on as well. What recommendations would you give to other agencies who are looking to modernize acquisitions or or agencies that you're looking to partner with on some of these tech initiatives? Well, I think um, the first thing that I, I, again, sort of highlight is you can't just shift risk, right? You can't, if you say, one of the things that I think happens all too often is that everyone knows that something is important. Everyone knows that something is risky and they're trying to avoid risk. And the reality is that you can't. You have to manage through it. And the way that you can manage through risk is through, again, reducing uncertainty through discovery. You can experiment, you can iterate, you can validate, you can do the work to manage risk in a way that allows you to to get to better outcomes. And also, frankly, you can share the risk. Um, One of the things that I think TTS is positioned really well to do is to help agencies meet their mission and allow us to take on certain risks that we're uniquely positioned to take on. And again, whether that's bringing on innovative acquisition practices, whether that's providing our some of our specific shared services or, and solutions, you know, our job at TTS is to, is to help agencies be successful. And so I guess, you know, one simple way is that if you're hearing this and you are an agency partner, you're, you're thinking, how do I modernize? How do I, how do I bring in some of these practices? feel free to reach out. We're here to help. Um, I'm available to answer any questions and, and to work with you and your teams to see you be successful. And hopefully those calls will keep coming because we see how valuable tech has been over the past year. And it sounds like the modernization is just going to grow from here. So that's very exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to get a look into what's going on at TTS and um, some of the things that are top of mind for you as agencies look to adopt technologies and reform their acquisitions processes. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks again for having me on. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to our website. And please, if you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes. We continue to strive to help you connect with federal IT's top decision makers. Thanks for listening.